Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Many of you know this podcast is all about leadership, and leadership is talked about all the time in books podcasts, blogs, and conferences. But how do you become a leader that others would want to follow? And even more, how do you become a leader that you would want to follow? Well, my guest today has written a book that addresses exactly those questions. My guest today is Scott Miller. He is the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership for Global Organizational Improvement for the firm Franklin Covey. And he just released a book entitled Management Mess to Leadership Success. 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. In the book, Scott shares relatable, accessible, and relevant experience and guidance with a refreshing transparency of his own ups and downs in leadership positions. Along with his experiences, the book guides readers in an introspective review of their own personal leadership style to ultimately help them become the kind of leader they would follow. Enjoy today's show. Well, Scott, it's great to have you on the show today, and congratulations on your new book. My pleasure. Thank you for that, and I'm glad to be on your show. I think it would be a great start to start out by exploring what first prompted you to write this book, and what do you hope to inspire in those who read it? You know, Rob, I have been very fortunate to have spent almost my entire 30-year career in the leadership business. I spent four years with the Disney company down in Orlando, and then transitioned to the Franklin Covey Company, gosh, almost 23 and a half years ago. So I've always been in the leadership development space in some direct or indirect way. And uh, this has been an amazing ride for me. And one of the things that I began to uncover was that the leadership space has a lot of books, right? There's no shortage of books about leadership development. And a lot of them I see, feel and felt, and even including some of our own at Franklin Covey, were very aspirational and maybe sometimes a bit too even academic. I wanted to write a new leadership book that was real and raw, relatable, that was really a book that gave permission for people to recognize that leadership is tough. It's hard. It's not for everyone. I, in fact, don't believe that everybody should be a leader of people. In fact, Rob, I'm not sure I should have been a leader of people. I have lots of talents, but that may not be one of the natural talents. The problem is so many of us are led, I might even say lured, into being a leader of others because it's kind of the next natural step. You want to earn more money want to be promoted, have a bigger title, you at some point kind of need to transition into a leader of people role. And it's just not for everyone for kind of obvious reasons. It takes a whole different level of skills, a different mindset, a different level of patience. And a lot of great individual producers make that transition unsuccessfully. And when they become a leader of people and they don't want to be one, now the company ends up losing one of their top performers and their new leader. So I just wrote the book as a caution to say, if you're thinking about being a leader, here's like 30 challenges that you're going to face. And here was my really struggle with them. But I laid the book out pretty bare. As you know, the book is called Management Mess to Leadership Success. And I, I 
if you will, kind of collated 30 challenges from all of Franklin Covey's experience and just told my story. My wife's convinced I'll never work again because the book has some pretty blush-worthy, funny, engaging stories on my messes. And I hope that gives voice to people to say, own your mess. Everybody knows your messes, your wife, your boss, the receptionist, those who work for you. There is some power in being vulnerable, I think massive influence in being vulnerable, and it's why the book has done so well. It debuted last week as the number one, actually two weeks ago, as the number one new release on Amazon. It's now in its third week at the number one spot in its category. I think it's because people were yearning for a more relatable, engaging, gosh, here's a challenge I'm going to face. Here's what Scott did wrong. I'm going to not say that. I'm going to not do that. And that's why I wrote the book. That's an interesting approach to leadership. And congratulations again on a great showing for your book. And sounds like a lot of people are resonating, as you mentioned, to your approach to leadership. In the midst of your research, what surprised you the most from your key findings when it came to leaders and organizations who really exhibit healthy leadership? I think it's the idea that leaders need to have all the answers, that leaders have to be the smartest, the most creative person, that they have to, you know, always be right. And it's not true. I think great leaders are willing to change their minds. Great leaders are listening as much as they're talking. It's a huge struggle for me. Like most leaders, I've been trained my whole life to be, you know, a a, a competent communicator, right? You know, master my vocabulary, speak from the stage, learn how to engage an audience, project a vision, you know, drill my message home, always be an influencer, sell mode. And I think it's counterintuitive that a great leadership competency. I, I think a communication skill is listening, that great leaders are patient. They don't always have to be right. To quote my friend Liz Wiseman, who wrote the seminal leadership book, Multipliers, leaders aren't the genius in the room. They're the genius maker in the room. They give psychological air for other people to feel smart and to actually take risks because high-growth organizations, whether you're a not-for-profit or whether you're for-profit, you want to grow. You want to gain influence and provide a service to more people. You want to make sure your people can take appropriate risks. And I think the surprising thing that I have found, Rob, that is so resonated. I mean, the book sold almost 7,500 copies last week. It's, you know, it's spreading like wildfire across Europe right now. People are looking to be able to relate to their leader. You know, people like vulnerability. You know, Brene Brown, the seminal author who's written, you know, gosh, a half dozen books, has popularized this in the last couple of years. For me, I don't mean to one-up Brene Brown by any chance, but I have found that over the years as I have been willing to be more vulnerable, to recognize that other people know my messes, so why not just confess them, talk about them, not make light of them, or not, you know, wallow in them or give myself permission not to improve them, but... There needs to be less of a separation between the team and the leader. People want to be able to trust, like, respect, and also know that their leader has some messes and that they're willing to acknowledge them. I think there's great, great currency in leaders being vulnerable and admitting their messes. Well said. And, and you emphasize in your book the critical importance of leading oneself well. So my question to you is, is self-leadership the most difficult and perhaps the most important aspect of leadership in your opinion? Yeah, I don't know if it's the most difficult. I, I think it certainly is the most important because, you know, what, what leaders model 
gets done. So if you are a gossiper as a leader, your culture will tolerate and thrive on gossiping. Of course, they won't thrive, right? It'll be a cancer. If you are constantly late, if you are a blamer, if you never take responsibility, whatever the issue is, whatever you're modeling as a leader is what your team members are going to think they're supposed to do. Not as copycats, but as the culture that you want. Everyone wants to make their boss pleased until they want to quit, right? So the leader is a linchpin in every organization. As a leader, you are creating culture in everything you do and everything you say. And, you know, the research shows that people don't quit their jobs. They quit their boss, their leader, and increasingly they quit their culture, Rob. So leaders are the carriers of culture. And culture is not this sort of nice, soft thing. Culture is everything. It is like one of the most frequently asked questions now in a job interview by the candidate, right? What's the culture here? What's it like to work here? Because people have choices. People don't have to stay in jobs for 20 years. They'll quit in a week if they don't like the culture or their boss. So leading yourself is fundamental to recognize that you're the linchpin of what your organization is about. Are you trustworthy? And by the way, Rob, you don't get to decide. The other person decides. We all think we're trustworthy, but you're trustworthy because someone else has chosen to trust you based on your behavior. So leaders need to be mindful, uber mindful. You're always being watched. Everything you say is being heard and listened to. Perhaps be a little bit more deliberate. Be a little more cautious. I think one of the biggest lessons, Rob, I've learned on my own podcast, which I host several for Franklin Covey, including a radio program on iHeartRadio, I interviewed the seminal author and influencer Seth Godin. If your listeners don't know who Seth Godin is, you've got to Google Seth. He has the largest followed blog in the U.S. He's a marketing leadership genius. He's become a friend of mine, and he also endorsed my new book, Management Mess, to leadership success, he said something to me that changed the way I behave. He taught me the difference between being reckless and being fearless. And I think, Rob, I spent too much of my career being reckless, not like illegal or immoral, just, you know, kind of saying what's on my mind, letting the chips fall where they may, just things like that. And I'm much more mindful of the implication of what I do and what I say and what it has on other people. I'm really trying to be less reckless and more fearless. Well, I really like that distinguishing, you know, between those two pieces, the, you know, between reckless and being more fearless. I love that. And I also thought it was very fascinating. You talked about the culture of organizations. I've noticed that on my own organization that I lead, um, you're right. I think particularly the millennials, but certainly just people in general today really want to know what culture they're joining when they uh, accept a job, whether it be the nonprofit world or the for-profit world. That's a great insight. Um, now, okay, to give my listeners a sneak peek about your book, I would like to look at one leadership challenge within your three main categories within the book. So let's just start with the lead yourself category. Uh, one of your leadership challenges you label this way, carry your own weather. Uh, what do you mean by this and why is it so important? Sure, like all of the challenges, you know, none of these are unique to me. I didn't invent them. This one is popularized by Stephen R. Covey in his seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That book is now 30 years old. It has sold 30 million copies. And one of the concepts that Dr. Covey wrote about in his book was this idea of carry your own weather. And this is about all of us have the freedom to choose our response to the people who annoy us, to the situations that aggravate us, to the vendors or suppliers that, you know, don't honor their commitments to us. That in between 
any stimulus coming at you and your response to it is a space. And in that space is your freedom to choose how you will respond. And I think as people become more cognizant of their reactivity, what sets them off, the types of things that elicit a response they're not proud of, the more they can move from mess to success. So metaphorically, great leaders that are moving to success carry their own weather. They don't let the mood of their boss hijack their day. They don't let the fight with their teenager ruin their ability to connect with their spouse that night or their partner, right? Easier said than done. But this, this notion of if you're clear in your values, if you've actually taken the time to write down your values, rank order them, be very clear what they are, and live your life in accordance with your own values, you'll find automatically that the boss's bad mood is not going to hijack your day. Again, it's, it's one of those kind of says easy, does hard kind of things. I turned 50 last year. And although I've been clear on my values for 15 years, I, mean, I can repeat them to you, right? They're very clear. Purpose, health, integrity, loyalty, positivity, abundance, and learning. I have seven values. They have an acronym called PhilPal. And I'm very clear on those. I find that when I'm living in alignment with my values, I'm able to carry my own weather better and not react to bad news or things that upset me and keep it in perspective. Hey, everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. Now, I also want to make sure you knew about a new feature. Um, we want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows that will be actually sent right to your inbox. And that way, you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. I love that. Well said. Well, let's go to the next category. Under the category of lead others, you talk about making it safe to tell the truth. Uh, give us the context for this leadership challenge. I mean, what does it look like for a leader to make it safe in their organization to tell the truth? Yeah, hang on for this one, because I'm actually especially passionate. I'm delighted that you picked this one to talk about. You know, in life, we all have blind spots. You, Rob, have blind spots, right? You're either not as kind or not as motivated or not as smart or just not as, you know, uh, collaborative as you think you are, right? We all have these blind spots in life. Every one of us do. And the only way that we can conquer these blind spots is by raising our self-awareness. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't have much self-awareness if somebody else that I trust isn't helping me become aware, right? It's, it's trusted people in our life. Could be our spouse, could be our parent, could be our best friend. Hopefully it's your leader that you can develop a rapport with where that person can give you feedback. So in order to decrease your blind spots and increase your self-awareness, you've got to have feedback. The challenge, Rob, with feedback is most people think if you ask for feedback, you're going to get it. And it's just not true. 
because the vast majority of people out there are kind of cowards. Now, that, that's not a character trait. I'm not insulting anybody, but it's a personality trait. A lot of us won't tell our best friend that they look horrible in that dress, right, or that your breath smells bad or that your idea isn't great. I mean, think about it. When your boss, when the CEO gives a speech at the annual sales conference or the you know, association of your not-for-profit, and she comes off the stage and says, how was it? You don't say, well, it was probably 40 minutes too long and you droned on way too long with the slides. No, you say, it was great, boss, I loved it. When you're thinking, oh, my gosh, you had 80 slides, you needed like eight. That's because the boss hasn't made it safe for you to tell her the truth. So great leaders that are moving from mess to success recognize that Getting feedback, in most cases, Rob, is more the responsibility of the person asking for it than the person who is getting it. So you've got to set conditions. You've got to make it safe for other people to tell you the truth. So finding someone in your life that you really trust, oftentimes it's a relative, your spouse, your partner, someone in your organization that you really trust has your best interests at heart. Ask them some specific questions. Give them, have them give you feedback on some specific areas. And when they give it to you, Rob, don't refute it. Don't deflect it. Don't explain it away. Oh, well, yeah, but I was really agitated that day or traffic was bad. No, just accept it. Write it down. You can ask some clarifying questions. And then decide, is that feedback valuable enough to implement into your life? Because as you know, not all feedback is helpful. You can have too much feedback. You can get feedback that's really not about you. It's about their frustration with their boss who looks like you or they once knew someone like you and so they don't trust you. Whatever it is, the more feedback that you receive, the more you'll be adept at deciding how to or how not to integrate it into your life. You've got to make it safe for other people to tell you the truth about you. Well, well said, and I think the self-awareness is so critical. And as a leader, um, my guess is you have experienced this. I've experienced it where you have leaders, when, particularly when you're starting in your career, uh, that didn't have good self-awareness and therefore were not great leaders and therefore did not create this safe place, as you said, to share the truth. So I, I don't think people develop self-awareness on their own, right? I, mean, I want to kind of throw everybody a bone. I mean, I, I didn't come out of the womb self-aware, right? Either did you. You develop self-awareness because people that you trust start to tell you, Scott, you know, you do this and you always say that. And sometimes you do this. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I do that? I didn't even know. Yeah, thanks for telling me. So self-awareness is, I think, accentuated when you've got solid relationships in your life. And, and ideally, your boss is your best coach because ideally, she or he has your best interests at heart. I mean, the best organization is one where people can trust the leader to give them high-courage feedback in a diplomatic, respectful way that exponentiates your self-awareness, then it improves their brand, their performance, and it's a gift that they'll have for their entire career and their entire life. That's excellent. Love it. All right, so there's third category in your book, and it's called Get Results. And in there, you talk a lot about identifying the wildly important goals. Now, I like how you describe that, first of all. Uh, why did you name it that way? And what are a few examples, for example, of wildly important goals for a nonprofit leader? Sure. Like most of the examples in my book, I have, with permission, borrowed them from someone much smarter than me. This concept of wildly important goals, or as Franklin Covey calls it, WIGS, W-I-G-S for short, 
came from one of our best-selling books called The Four Disciplines of Execution. The fact of the matter is, Rob, the idea was really popularized by Jim Collins, the seminal and famed author of books like Good to Great and Built to Last. Jim called them BHAGs, Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals. But to answer your question, a WIG is a wildly important goal, not just one of many, but a goal that you as the leader, as the parent, as the committee leader, has designated that absolutely must happen. Nothing else can come at the expense of this goal, given the name, wildly important goals. And not everything can be wildly important, right? Things can be important, but this is wildly important. And once you as a leader, with consensus on your team, have talked about, debated, designed these wildly important goals together, then you have got to communicate them in a way repeatedly that everybody knows it is still a wildly important goal. And your behaviors will either elevate that or diminish it. Have you defunded it? Have you stopped talking about it? Have you forgotten about it? Are you even measuring it? Are you meeting your target? Are you holding people accountable? And perhaps more importantly, not only does everybody know that it's a wildly important goal, but as the leader, Rob, you've taken the time to sit down and communicate with everybody involved in the goal. What's their role? What's their contribution? Do they need to learn something new or do something different? Do you need to see a new behavior in them to actually execute on the goal? And while you're at it, show some vulnerability. Admit that maybe you were a mess on it and and, and talk about what are you as the leader going to do to move outside of your comfort zone and and contribute to the wildly important goal. And while we're on it, Rob, I want to just make a definition term. At Franklin Covey, how you structure goals is something we're super passionate about. When you have a goal of any sort, especially a wildly important goal, it needs to be designed in a construct that is from X, to why, by when. And this is simple, but I think profound. We're going to raise, you know, um, uh, the number of not-for-profits that we collaborate with from 62 to 65 by December 31st, 2020. Or I'm going to lose seven pounds um, and go from 195 to 192 by Easter, right, from X to Y by when. When you have those types of well-constructed goals, people are clear on what the goal is and they know what their contribution is, your likelihood of achieving it are exponential. I love that. It's really, really well said. And uh, you've done a lot of research for this. Um, I'm wondering, do you have some national, perhaps even global trends in terms of leadership that you've discovered and how can effective nonprofits incorporate them into their organizations? You know, I'll revisit a concept we discussed. You know, culture is everything. In an organization, whether you are not-for-profit or for-profit, people want to enjoy their careers. The fact of the matter is most of us now, at least in the free market economy, spend more time with our work associates than we do awake with our family members and friends. I mean, think about that. If you're going to spend as much or more time with your boss or your you know, cube, cube mate than you are with the person you married or are dating or people you love, You want to be happy at work, and culture is everything. Anybody can copy a logo. You can copy supply chains and patents and pricing and product and placement and fundraising activities, and everything can be copied. What cannot be copied is your culture. In every organization, whether it's three people or 300,000 people, 
your culture is what makes you unique. People will quit your culture. And by the way, people won't consider a different job. They won't take the call from the recruiter, which, by the way, is happening every hour of the day. Regardless of the nature of your organization, your employee's email and their phone is blowing up with the low unemployment right now with people wanting to hire great people. A leader's key role is to constantly being in recruitment and retainment mode. You have got to be so humble and so confident that you can not be the smartest person in the room. Check your ego and recognize that your job is to hire smarter people than you. Are, are, are you humble enough to recognize that you may not Rob, be the best fundraiser or you may not be the best marketer or you may not be the best person to always give the speech at the big ecumenical event? Your role is to build culture and attract and retain talent. I think too often leaders try to be the genius in the room and be the gene, not versus the genius maker. And I think that's the big trend is leaders need to redefine what their competition is and it's, what their, what their um, contribution is. And regardless of your industry, it is just that, creating culture where people feel respected, trusted, empowered, able to take some calibrated risks and really enjoy, understand how what their contribution is in connection to your purpose and your mission as an organization. Some of those might sound like buzzwords. Those are concepts I am super passionate about in all of my career and my research and reading and interviewing has shown are absolutely right on spot right now in every organization. Well, then as you think about long-term impact for nonprofit leaders specifically, if they're able to follow the principles outlined in your book, um, what would those things be? What is that long-term impact? You know, I think about what's your legacy, right? I mean, like, what is it you're really about? You know, I have learned, someone really wise, a wise leader of mine once said to me, and I, I've always been in the for-profit world, and I said, they said to me, you know, Scott, no one is going to remember whether you made your second quarter EBITDA or your cost of goods was on or off budget or whether you meet, met your fourth quarter projections. I mean, I have to do those things to keep my job, right? I mean, Rob, you can't keep your job if you overspend your budget. The board will toss you out, right? I mean, you've got you know, basic competencies that you have to do. I think what your legacy is, is are you lifting your people up? Are, are, are they better off? by having known you? What's it like to work for you? What's it like to be in a meeting with you? What's your legacy? Are, are you investing in your people so that when they do choose to lead your organization, which by the way, I don't think is an insult. I think if you as a leader see your legacy as longer term than just what your role is right now, you're going to lift people up and place talented people all over the industry. I, I think the finest compliment, it can be if someone chooses to leave you not because they're quitting your culture, but because you've invested in them selflessly to build their self-confidence, build their self-esteem, build their brand, build their skills, and they can go somewhere else and have a, perhaps a better, bigger, different impact, earn more money for their family, give them more choices. I see that as a compliment, not as a snub. Leaders can change their paradigms. One of your jobs beyond retaining and attracting culture is lifting people up and giving them the opportunity to go do something bigger and better. And it might not be with you. It might be with your competitor. If someone's going to your competitor, that means they're probably quitting you. 
then you probably are quitting your culture. So be mindful about that. This has been so good. So my guest again today is Scott Miller, um, the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership for Global Organizational Improvement Firm, Franklin Covey. And of course, he's got a new book out, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. If people want to find out more about this book, first of all, and then of course, more about you and what you would do, where would you send them? Sure. So the book site, Rob, is managementmess.com. And you can find out more about the book there. Uh, obviously, the book is available for purchase everywhere, including in Park City, where you and I both live. I live in Salt Lake City. It's on Amazon, all the major retailers. You'll find some cool videos on the website. You'll have a list of all of the 30 challenges. I'm available for keynote speaking. You can also follow me on, on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook, Instagram. But managementmess.com is the best place to learn more about the book. So I hope you'll visit it. That's great. Scott, this has been a fascinating conversation. Again, for my listeners, I think a lot of practical advice when it comes to leadership. Thanks for being on the show today. My pleasure, Rob. Thanks for the invite. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.